This morning's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 and verse 5. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. This is the word of the Lord. For the past month, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and we've been looking at chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 consists of a series of case studies that help us to understand what faith in Jesus Christ really is. Chapter 11, it begins with the rational. The author begins, verse 3, he says, by faith we understand. What he's really saying is, I need you to understand this. What do we understand? He says that the visible is not all that there is. That's really what he's saying in verse 3. That there's a reality underneath reality. But as you continue to read, and it becomes more and more pronounced as you read, verse 4, by faith Abel offered. Verse 7, by faith Noah built this ark. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. Over and over you see people as you go through this series of case studies. Someone did this. Someone did that. Someone sacrificed this by faith. Someone offered this up by faith. But in verse 5, we get to Enoch, and the author says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life without experiencing death. He was taken uh, from this life without, without experiencing death. He was commended as one who pleased God. Now, in other words, what we're really saying here is we don't really know what Enoch actually did. What did he do that caused God to take him? The fact is we know very little about Enoch. There are only four verses that are explicitly written about him in the entire Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, four verses. The, the author writes that Enoch walked with God and God took him. He went to heaven. He didn't experience death because he pleased God. And uh, in Genesis chapter 5, we see that he walked with God. So if you take chapter 11 of Hebrews, that he pleased God, and chapter 5 of Genesis, that he walked with God, and you put those two things together, what you see here is that we know just enough to understand what Enoch actually did and, uh, and why he was taken from this earth without experiencing death. He walked with God. He walked with God, and God actually commended him. He was pleased by that. That's what he did. Why is that so special? Why is that so special? The word walk, the word walk, it shows up everywhere in the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. We see that really just after Adam and Eve had sinned, they're in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, just after they had sinned, just after they had disobeyed God, Genesis chapter 3 reads, Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is paradise. This is the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had just sinned. And what did they do? They heard the sound of God, the Lord God walking. And they were afraid. And so they hid from God. They went into the bushes. They went into the trees. They hid from God. What does this tell you? From the beginning... From the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, God took walks. God took walks, and he walked with us. He li we literally used to see and hear God walking in the cool of the day. At the end of the day, when the, when the earth grew cooler, 
God would start to walk and he would look for us and he would walk with us. This is God. This is the creator God. This is the king of the universe. And yet every day he would come to us, his creation, and he would walk. Now, what do you do when you walk with somebody? If you've ever gone on walks, what do you do? When you walk with someone, there's intimacy. What you're really saying is, I want to hear what's on your heart, and I want to share with you what's on my heart. That's what you're saying. There's deep intimacy there. The minute we've sinned, the minute we chose to disobey God, what happened? We covered ourselves. We were naked. We covered ourselves, and we hid. We hid from God. We couldn't stand the idea of intimacy with God. We were afraid of God. There was a distance created with God. There was no more intimacy with God anymore. It's very, very practical. In fact, you're going to understand this on very different levels. On one level, you know everybody here has wronged somebody at some point in time. When you wrong somebody and that person starts to come in your direction, what do you do? You, uh, there's a, a bit of a fear. There's a distance that's created. And because of that distance, you want to walk the other way. You want to look the other way. You don't, you don't want to face that person. Everyone's experienced that at some point in their lives. But on another level, let me tell you something about this author, Jane Jacobs. She wrote a very famous book. Her seminal piece of literature is uh, this book called The Birth and Death of American Cities. Anyone who's ever into studying urban uh, cities, uh, the urban context in America, uh, they probably read this book. It was written decades ago. In this book, she writes about how the new developments, how new residential developments are forming in, in America. And one of her keen observations is that there's a disappearance of sidewalks. The sidewalks are disappearing. People aren't walking together anymore. And so they're, they're not walking together anymore because there's a loss of connection. There's a loss of intimacy. And because there's a loss of intimacy, there's greater fear. And there's greater distrust. There's a greater insecurity. We're seeing more and more homes that are closed off. The disappearance of sidewalks. People aren't connected. You don't see homes with porches that newly built anymore in our cities. And because there's a greater distrust, greater fear, less security, there's greater violence. And that becomes a feedback loop of sorts. In Genesis chapter 3, we became distant from God. We became separated from God. And that created this deep sense of foreignness everywhere. Sin has made the world incredibly unsafe. We become rootless. We become wanderers. We become fearful. We become insecure. We're at war with creation. In Genesis chapter 3, it outlines the curse of God. And in the curse, now you see the birth of disease, the birth of illnesses. We become foreign to the world. The world has become dangerous in every way. We're at war with nature. There are tempests. There are storms. There are earthquakes. We're at war with one another. There are actual wars. Wars over everything completely alienated from God, completely alienated from one another. And so by the end, we're totally alone. We come to this great reality that we're totally alone. And by the end of chapter 3, what happens? Man is driven out of the Garden of Eden, totally estranged from God, alienated from one another, totally alone. In Genesis chapter 4, you have brothers, two brothers, at war with each other. One brother kills the other brother, totally alone. Then all of a sudden, we come to Genesis chapter 5, and you come to Enoch. And Enoch walked with God. You see why that's special? Enoch walked with God. What do you see here? Enoch concluded that it's still actually possible to have an intimate relationship with God. 
that there was a way that God would make to bridge the gap between himself and God. And Hebrews chapter 11 says he did this by faith, and it pleased God. God commended him for it. It pleased God. God can be real in our lives, so real that it would shake everything that you rest on, your, every foundation that you rest on. God could be so real in our lives that it would change everything you think about the world, everything you know about what is visible. Everything, it would change everything in your life. What does it mean to walk with God? There are three things today, three points. We need to understand our war with God. We need to understand our peace with God. We need to understand then what it means to walk with God, our walk with God. The war, the peace, the walk. First, the war. The war with God. To walk with somebody is what? When you walk with someone, we just said, is you're at peace with them. There's a comfort there. There's a trust there. There's a reconciliation. There's a distance that has been bridged there. In fact, the ancient Semitic word, the ancient Hebrew word to walk is really more than a physical walk. Much like today, when we use the word, I'm walking with, the phrase, I'm walking with you, we're saying, I'm journeying with you. There's a peace between us that allows us to journey together. We're in partnership in a journey together, almost metaphorically. Now think about this. When you first meet somebody, at the very start of your relationship, at the very start of your journey, it's a bit asynchronous. They email you, because all they have is your email address. It may take days for you to respond, and you email back. If they get your number, they may text you. It's asynchronous. After some time, you text them back. And there's a formality there. There's, a, there's an asynchrony there. And it takes, there's delays. There's constant delays. It's asynchronous. You meet up, and then there's an awkwardness there. And after some time, what happens is, uh, little by little, even though there was awkwardness at first, that awkwardness, that awkwardness is there because of the distance in the beginning. After a few years, when you look back on your relationship with this person, some relationships actually break out of that awkwardness. Some relationships, that, that distance gets bridged. And what you say about that relationship is you say, now we're walking together. What you're saying is that asynchronous relationship has become synchronous. Now you're more in step with one another. Now the relationship is much more organic. Now you're able to pick up the phone and with peace and comfort because there's a reconciliation there. There's a bridge that has been, there's a gap that has been bridged. And because of that, there's an openness. There's more trust. There's more security. There's no more hiding. There's no more guardedness. It's why in marriage, the Bible calls us in marriage before there's any form of physical nakedness, with each other, before there's any form of sexual nakedness with each other, your first call to a relational intimacy, a walking together. When Genesis chapter 5 says, Enoch walked with God, what he's saying is by faith he walked with God. That's amazing. It's remarkable. To walk means there's comfort and trust and peace. And it's amazing. Why? Because man, since they chose to, ever since they chose to disobey God, there's been a war. Man has been at war with God. When you're in a war, there's no comfort, there's no trust, there's no peace, there's no rest. Everything is veiled. Your plans against that person is cloaked. Your schemes are hidden against that person. And we're in a world, we're in a war, a world that's at war with God. We're alienated from God ever since the days of the Garden of Eden. And yet Enoch walked with God. How'd that war actually begin? It began with a rebellion. It began with a coup, a coup d'etat, or an attempted coup. 
When Adam and Eve decided to disobey God, they were looking at the creator of the world. They were looking at the king of the universe. And what they're saying is, no, I don't trust you anymore. I'm not just going to give my life to you anymore. And so they disobeyed. And when they disobeyed, what they're saying is, I don't want you to be king in my life anymore. I get to decide what is good for me. I get to decide what to do and what not to do. It was an insurrection. It was a rebellion. It was exactly that. It was a rebellion against the king. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve. Look at us. Every time we lie, every time you act selfishly, every time you choose to disobey the Ten Commandments, Every time you disobey, and even if sometimes you choose to obey, even if sometimes you choose to do good, what are you saying? I get to decide what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, how I'm going to do it, why I'm going to do it. It's going to be on my terms. We're rebelling. Even the good things we do, in that state that we're in, we're rebelling. It's an act of rebellion, even if you choose to obey. It's why rebelling It's why every sin is a rebellion against God. And every obedience in the midst of our sinfulness is an act of rebellion. Does that make sense to you? We're at war. It's a war. Now, it gets complicated, very, very nuanced, very, very complicated, because everybody here has a reason for why they're at war. One side, in any war, one side, the nature of every war is there are two sides. One side always has a legitimate, they believe they have a legitimate case against the other. One side is always blaming the other side. One side always says, you're the one that's at fault. You're the one that's the cause of all my problems. You're the one that's threatening me, and that's why I need to win. I need to position myself. If I don't fight for this position, that's the end of me. I'm done for. So we justify the war. We justify ourselves in the war. It's all a lie. In fact, this war against God began with a lie. In Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, the serpent the devil, Satan, came to Adam and Eve. I'm just going to paraphrase what he says. Basically, what he's saying is this. Are you sure that God is for you? Are you sure that God is, are you sure that he really loves you? Are you sure he's not trying to subvert you and control you? Because look at you. You're a bright person. You're a beautiful person. You're very capable and you are wise. You're just like God. You have judgment and the ability to discern just like God. Don't let God hold you back. Because don't you want this? This is good. This is beautiful. Isn't it pleasing to you? Don't let anything hold you back because you have such potential. Don't let God hold you back from that potential. God is not for you, you see. You're never going to have joy unless you pursue this, you see. Dr. Timothy Keller, my my favorite preacher, he calls lies like this. He says, this is wartime propaganda. Every country in any war has a propaganda, has an approach to propaganda, what they ultimately try to convince you to justify their war. Every country in any war does it, but we also do this. We do this as well. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel, there was this brokenness. Everything literally fell apart. There was carnage everywhere. They became alienated from the cells, alienated from each other. They were hiding. They were in fear. They were in shame. And God says to them, God, God, walking in the cool of the day, says, what happened? And he wasn't asking Adam because he didn't know. He knew. He was asking Adam to see if Adam could make sense. He says, what happened? What did Adam say? This woman that you gave me, he blamed God. In other words, what he's saying is, your fault. 
In fact, Adam and Eve, they both blame God. It's in our nature. This is our nature. And that sense of being at war with God and that blaming God for who we are, where we are, our circumstances, it affects the deepest layer of psychology, our psychology. That's why psychology can't solve the problem. It, it affects the deepest layer of our emotional state. And that's why medication is not necessarily going to solve the problem. It's going to affect the deepest areas of our will, our thoughts, everything. That's why education isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. It doesn't even matter how moral you are. Think about this. On one hand, you have a person here in this room. There's a person. There's always a person in this room that says, yes, I'm in Philadelphia, this up-and-coming city. I'm in this big city. And now that I'm away from the grip of my parents, and now I'm away from the grip of the church, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. I'm going to go wild. I'm going to party. I'm going to meet people. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to play hard. I'm going to break free of the church. I'm going to break free of these chains. But on the other hand, there's another person in this room. There's always another type of person in this room that's a lifer at church, a lifer, very devout, very pious, very moral, but they're always feeling guilty. They're always comparing themselves with the next person that's in the church. And where they are, their status in the church is built on how they do against that other person in the church or other people in the church, other types in the church, and they're always judging and, and they never know where they really stand with God, especially when they do wrong. And they always feel good about themselves when they do right, you see. In both cases, what do you see? In both cases, both types of people, they're believing in the wartime propaganda. That God is not for them. And so the first person, he's irreligious. He says, God isn't for me. And so what do I need to do? I need to pursue what I want to pursue. I need to build. I need to gain. I need to enjoy. I need to experience. Because God is not for me. He's keeping things from me. And so I need to go out and pursue these things on my own and be for myself. But then there's the religious person in the church who says, God isn't for me. So I don't really trust that he's as forgiving as the Bible says. And I don't trust that he desires to bless the way the Bible says. And I don't trust that God, even in my, because I look at my suffering, I look at my circumstances, and I don't see it. I don't see that God is for me. And I've, I've grown up in the church, and I'm a good person, and I've always obeyed the laws. But I don't see it, you see? And so when they're both disappointed, they say, God let me down. God has disappointed me. Listen, whether it's through the bottle or through the Bible, both sides are buying into the wartime propaganda. How do you know this? How do you know this? What's at the heart of your anxieties? What you're saying is, I'm afraid that God is not for me. And so God's not going to get it right. What's at the heart of your anger, the deep-rooted anger? God failed me. God is not for me. God failed me. God didn't get it right. My life was, to go, was supposed to go here, and I'm going here. God failed me. What's at the heart of your despair? God is not for me. He let me down. My whole life, I gave my life to God, and he let me down. We're at war, you see. Every day we're at war. It means we have a problem with God. But God also has a problem with us. And his problem is real. 
He's not buying into any propaganda. His problem with us is real. It's legitimate. In fact, the root word for legitimate is what? Legal. His problem with us is legal. We have rebelled against the king. We're selfish. We're emotional. And we're broken in an emotional way. We're selfish in in a broken way. We're broken. And his issue is this. I could have wiped you out. I had every legal reason to just wipe you out with one fell swoop. I'm justified in doing that. But rather what he says is, I love you. You want to rule? Okay. Then you just can't rule in my kingdom. And so now in this broken world that you've created with your broken souls and your broken bodies, there's a distance that has been created between you and me. We're alienated from each other. And now you have created this dangerous world and now you have to live in it. It's like a death sentence. You have to live in it. We're separated from each other. That's the wrath of God evident in the world today. It's the evidence of the war, the brokenness that we see. It's evidence of the war that we are at with God. Now, the second point is, then what does it mean to have peace with God? How do you find peace with God? Enoch walked with God. Enoch, much like if you read through Hebrews 11, much like Uh, Well, much like Adam and Eve, much like Noah, much like Abraham, much like Moses, all they had was a promise. Basically, the promise goes like this. You are out in this broken world that you've created, and you can't come back in. Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden because of the war. In fact, God placed a sword right in the garden, at the entrance to the garden. Basically, what he's saying is this is a death sentence for you. You are now out in this dangerous world, in this dangerous place that you've created because of your sin. And if you ever try to come back in on your own strength, on your own power, on your own will, it will kill you. The sword will come down. You will die. And ever since then, we have been working. We've been dying trying to get back in to create this garden of our own. That's our pursuits. That's our lives. Basically, what God says, if you're going to come in, you're going to get cut. But the promise is, I will send someone who will bear my name. Who will, who will be a child of Eve, a descendant of Eve. He will be bruised. He will be wounded mortally, fatally, but he will bring you in. That's the promise. That's all Adam had. That's all Eve had. That's all they had. That's all Abel had. That's all Enoch had. It's all they knew, but they trusted it. They looked ahead to that. That, was, that. The reality of what God had promised to them was so real. It shaped their foundation. It shaped their hope, their trust, their lives. They acted in line with that. That is faith. That's what it means to live by faith. That's faith. And we have so much more of a resource than they ever had. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's really printed in your call to worship. The Apostle Paul writes this. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. What he's saying is there's a legal reason for God to count our sins against us, but he had recon- he's reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against us. And he committed us, he committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. 
as though God is making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with God. Why? Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? In the midst of this war, God in Christ was reconciling those of us who are broken from him. God was reconciling that brokenness, bridging that gap, bridging that alienation, bridging that brokenness. He was doing it himself. He committed to doing that himself. Because the war is not going to end. The war is not going to end on our own. So he chose not to count our sins against us. How? You have to picture this. Both sides, these two warring parties. Both sides are fighting. Both sides are struggling. Both sides are just pouring out ammunition on the other. Right? One side, we're just pouring out our ammunition. On who? On the cross. On Jesus Christ. Now picture this. On the cross, God himself is just pouring out his wrath. The full force of his fury. Where? On the cross. On Jesus. Both sides just pouring out their wrath. Where? The war converges on the cross. The Bible says God in Christ is reconciling us to himself. God came with a legal justice that was intended for us, but it's Jesus Christ who's put on trial. Jesus Christ who's beaten. Jesus Christ who became tortured. Jesus Christ who was mocked. Jesus Christ who was spit on. Jesus Christ who was jeered at. Why? Because we're saying, I don't want Jesus Christ as king. These people, they're standing around, the teachers, the leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they said, we don't want Jesus as king. We don't want anyone to control our lives. So what did they do? They nailed him to a cross and they speared him. When you look at the cross... You see, Jesus Christ, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means is he's saying, I have been forsaken. I have been alienated from God. I'm totally alone. I'm rootless. I have no security. There is no defense for me. There is no escape for me. There is no cover for me. I'm naked and totally exposed. And I've been, for, I've been nailed to the cross. On the cross, the Father poured out his wrath on the Son. He declared war on his Son. Jesus Christ received a death sentence. Jesus Christ received the sword. It came down. He got cut. He was torn apart, ripped apart on the cross. Jesus Christ received the bruises. Jesus Christ received the wounds. Jesus Christ was crushed on the cross. And so he became distant. He says, I'm forsaken. He's saying, I am distant from God. I'm estranged from the Father. In Isaiah Isaiah chapter 53, he said he was cast out from the land of the living. Why? So that he could bridge the gap. So that the war can converge on him and he would become the bridge. The cross becomes the bridge to the gap. The cross ends the war. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. Why did God have to pour out this kind of wrath? I mean, doesn't he love his son? And if he just loves his son and loves us, just that's, let's call it a day. 
Why did he have to pour out this wrath? Trust me, you need to hear this, and you need to know that he needed to do this. Why? Because it's justice. Think about this. If you went on trial, if you go to a trial, because someone has been hurting you in a great way, in a legal way, they were hurting you. And the judge hears both sides, and the judge says, okay, come on. We're all here about the, the goodwill of man. Let's just both sides let it go. What would you say? You as the, the plaintiff and the wronged party, what would you say? You would say, no! What kind of court is this? I'm here for justice. And the reason why I'm here for justice is because you cannot have social order without justice. You cannot have society, a true community, without justice. There are laws in the world, and when the laws are violated, there has to be justice because if you just let things go, you will not have social order. You will, evil will win. If God even lets one sin go, evil will win. You can't just let it go. I'm going to give it to you in a, in a much more uh, a poignant way, a much more relative way for you. Think about uh, somebody, everyone here has been hurt by somebody deeply. Not a single person is in this room that has never been hurt by somebody. Let's say you've been hurt by somebody. There's a trauma. Whenever you're hurt deeply, betrayed by somebody, there's a trauma, a deep trauma. You can't rest. You know you can't rest. And the reason why you can't rest is because you know out there somebody owes a debt to you. It's a sin debt. They've sinned against you in a deep way and they owe you a debt. And that debt causes havoc in your life. You're just broken by this. You're, you're in pain by this. Trust has been lost. Unrest has settled in. Betrayal has taken place. And so there's a sorrow and there's a grief. That's really the meaning of a war, right? Dividing lines have been created, right? Everyone who's ever been hurt knows that you can't just let that go. There is an emotional debt that has to be paid, and somebody has to pay the debt. Now, you can now take the fury and unleash it on that person, right? Then that person pays the debt. Or you can say, I choose to forgive you, but then you're going to swallow the poison, and you're going to swallow not only their onslaught on you, you're going to swallow your own pain. And you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to take this because that's the only way the war can end, right? So, but somebody has to pay. Either they're going to pay or you're going to pay. That's the meaning of war. But Jesus Christ suffered the unrest. He suffered the wrath. He suffered the penalty that we deserve to the end. And on the cross, he suffered the full fury of God's wrath down to the end so that we wouldn't have, there wouldn't be a drop of God's wrath left for his people. Why? so that he can bridge the gap. We can have peace. That's how you know there's peace. And how do you know this? In Luke chapter 2, at the birth of Jesus Christ, you have shepherds who are out in the field, and the glory of God came and enveloped them. And the angels and the heavenly hosts came, and what message did they bring? Glory to God in the highest for his glory and on earth, peace to men on whom God's favor rests. What is he saying? Jesus has come. The war is over. The war is over. You can walk with God again. 
Every time you look at the cross in the midst of your sin, you know the war is over. That's the end of your guilt. Every time you look at the cross, you know the war is over. God is no longer doing things against you because he's angry at you. You see that? There's no more fear. You can confess again. You can run to the Father again. You can walk with God again. Jesus Christ lost the Father so that we can have the Father. Jesus Christ lost intimacy with God, forsaken. Why? So that he, so that the Father remembers us. Remember on the cross, Jesus Christ crucified between two people, right? What did the one criminal say? Remember me. And what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me. We can walk with Jesus again. We can walk with God again. Lastly, last point, how do you walk? How does this become practical for us? How do you apply the end of the war in our lives? So when Paul says, be reconciled to God, I implore you, be reconciled with God. How do you do that? First, there's an internal, there's an internal, and there's an external. First, the internal. First, you have to admit that you've been at war with God in the first place. Every one of us, we have to admit that we are daily taking part in a war with God. And you have to admit your part of the war. You've got to stop blaming God for the war, and you have, to take, you have to admit and own up to your part of the war. You have to say, you know what, Lord, God, King, Father, Creator, it is, my part of the war is unjustified, but you have a legitimate case against me. Here's who I am. Now think about this. If you don't believe that you are at war with God and you don't believe that you are at fault, the war is never going to end. You're always going to blame God down to the end. And you're gonna, that's going to translate into you blaming other people for your problems. That's going to translate into you blaming yourself sometimes. You're going to beat yourself up. You're going to beat other people up. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to be an increasing alienation. The way you know is as the years go by, some of you are just starting your life in a, in a sense. And other people, you're in the middle part of your life, so to speak. But as the years go by, you see the deterioration of war. You see the carnage, alienation from other people, alienation from your own psychology, so to speak, you see. You become more and more estranged from God. That's what happens. That's what happens. It translates into that. Now, if you don't believe that, when you look to the cross, another way you can tell is that when you look at the cross, it doesn't get you. It doesn't shape you. It doesn't move you. And so as a result, worship becomes mechanical. Prayer becomes mechanical. Reading the Bible becomes mechanical. Connecting with people in community groups, it's just a mechanical thing. But, and the reason why is because God doesn't look beautiful to you. God isn't the hero in your life. God isn't just in your life. God isn't righteous in your life. And so you're not going to be moved towards God to walk with him. You see that? These things all become just things that you do. And the reason why you do these things is because you're still working to earn his favor. But remember what the angel said to the shepherds when Jesus was born? He said, peace to men on whom God's favor rests. What that means is it rests on you. You receive it. You don't earn it. If anything, the gospel negates your work. 
all think about this. And I hate to bring to be the bearer in some ways of bad news to you, but it's actually good news for you, friends. All the work that you've been doing at church means nothing. I know it sounds horrible, but it's true. It means nothing. There's nothing that you have done ever in your life to bridge the gap except by faith given to you by the Spirit of God, by faith alone, trusting that the war is over because of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no work. The gospel negates all your work. All your attempts at being good on your own, all your trying, it's hard to give that up. I know. We're all type A people here. It's hard to give that up. It's hard to give up that truth. But when you see the gospel and you see that you are at war with God and you're able to admit that God has a legitimate case against you, your heart changes. It starts with a very deep desperation. And you need to experience that every day. That's how renewal happens. It begins with a deep desperation. And that desperation resides with a gladness because Jesus Christ paid the price. He paid the penalty for your sins. The war is over, so you're able to acknowledge your self-deception. You're able to acknowledge the way you justify yourself. You're able to acknowledge your trying, all the embarrassing. You're able to look at yourself and go, oh, that's so embarrassing of myself that I tried to do these things, really, to be acknowledged by God. All my good deeds, you see the darkness in all of it. There's a gladness, there's a peace. It moves you towards God. You start to delight in God. Jesus Christ becomes more and more beautiful to you. Your life, in its core and its foundation, there's a peace that nothing you've ever pursued in your life otherwise could have ever given you. And so what happens is you can become open with people. The alienation that you once had starts to become closed, and now you start to move towards people with openness. You feel the embrace of God. There's a greater joy, and that joy is everlasting. You start to walk with God. Do you see that? Now, that's the internal part. You have to have that. But there has to be an external, right? God, walking with God is not just an internal thing. When you look at the cross, you see the blood of Jesus Christ spilt for you. The war is over. We've established that. What that means is you're acceptable. You're loved. You're, you're no longer condemned. You know what happens on the outward? That's going to give you a poise. There's a poise. There's a poise that you, you start to practice that peace. That's what it means to walk. It's not just having intimacy. There's a delight in God, the Father. It's an intimacy with God that shapes your reality on the outside. So what happens is when you get criticized by people, you're able to handle the criticism. When you're judged by people, you're able to handle the judgment. You know why? Because the war is over. The ultimate judge has ruled. You see that? There is a confidence. There is a poise. You know what that means? Before every exam that you take, that exam, if you let that exam judge you, you're going to fall apart based on the grade. You see that? But if God has already ruled and commends you by faith, what exam, what trial, what judgment, what promotion or loss of promotion, what demotion will ever end you? No judgment will end you. You see that? There is a poise that comes with a person in the midst of exams, in the midst of trials, in the midst of heavy circumstances in their lives you're going to be able to say, go ahead, do your worst. Because the worst thing that you can do is kill me. And even there, God will only reshape you, remake me, and complete me. Do you see that? That's what it means to walk. Enoch walked with God. Enoch sensed 
God's presence all the time in his life. That's what that means. Will you plunge yourself into the peace of Christ purchased for you by Jesus? Stop fighting with God with your life hanging in the balance. Stop gambling your life away. Surrender. Wave the flag. Surrender, okay? When you surrender, what you're saying is what? Peace, peace. But through the gospel, this kind of surrender, first of all, it's the only surrender that gives you real peace. But it's the only surrender that also gives you real victory. Do you trust it? Surrender. Let's pray.